Thanks for tuning in to the Met Church Podcast. Here at the Met, we are all about connecting people to God and one another. If you have any questions or want more information about what's going on here at the church, then head to our website at metchurch.com. We would love to stay connected with you throughout the week through social media, so be sure to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Now, enjoy the message. I want to wish all of you a happy Easter and tell you how much it means to us to have you viewing our service and not just viewing it, but sharing it with your friends and family. And we pray that the time that we're together will be a time that's uplifting and encouraging to you, uh, a time that uh, hopefully and, and prayerfully will impact your life in a wonderful, wonderful way. We're concluding our series we've entitled Paradox, as you know, a paradox is a statement, while true, it seems to be contradictory, like a bittersweet sort of a thing, a good and the bad sort of thing, kind of like the Romans 8.28 sort of thing, when Paul said that we know all things, all things, good things and bad things and happy and sad things, Paul said all things work together, not independent of one another, but together, it's a paradox, to those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. And even in the Easter season, there are beautiful paradoxes that we see when we look into the story of Easter. You think about the cross, the greatest event in human history when Jesus bore our sin on the cross. And yet, long before the cross occurred, there was a prophecy concerning the cross that you find in the, uh, the book of Psalm where David was writing in Psalm 85, verse 10, he talks about this paradox. Get this image in your mind. He said, mercy and truth met together. And in meeting together, they came to an agreement and they, they embraced. Well, that's a paradox. You say, what do you mean? Well, how does mercy and truth ever agree on anything? Uh, they're principles that stand opposed to one another. For example, truth looks at us and says, the soul that sins must die. Truth looks at us and says, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Uh, truth looks at us and says that no one with sin can enter into the presence of God. So truth paints kind of a hopeless picture for us. So here is truth standing before us saying, look, you've sinned. Because of your sin, you cannot forgive yourself. Because of your sin, you cannot enter into the presence of God. So here is truth, and what truth says is, is true. And yet on the other side, here's mercy. Mercy says, yeah, I know, I know they've sinned, but they were born with a nature of sin. It, it, there really wasn't any fault of their own. They had that on them, and it was handed down, you know, generationally to them. And they're doing the best they can. I mean, can we find something in there, some kind of redemption in there? Uh, can they get a second chance? And so here is mercy on one side, and here is truth on the other side, and both both are accurate. <laughs> I can argue on either side of those issues. And so throughout all of history, you have the tension between these two principles, truth and mercy. And yet when David was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and he penned that prophetic psalm, he was looking forward to the cross. He was looking forward to that event where Jesus Christ, God's sacrifice, Jesus Christ, his sinless son, would go to a cross and truth would demand that the soul that sins must die. 
The Bible says Jesus became sin for us. He who knew no sin bore on his body our sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So there was truth at the cross. And yet Jesus turns to one of the thieves that were hanging next to him on that cross, that thief who cried out and said, remember me, sir, when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus turns and with mercy says, today, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus looks out from the cross and he says, Father, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And in that moment, that amazing prophetic paradox was absolutely fulfilled at the cross where mercy and truth met together and there was agreement and they embraced. So you have the paradox of the cross. And then you have the paradox of the empty tomb. <laughs> I mean, how can someone who is dead yet still be alive? And yet it's the miracle of resurrection. It is this idea that in dying, we still live. It is a paradox. So this idea of the cross and this idea of the empty tomb brings before us this morning incredible and amazing paradoxes. It's been well said that the cross represents the payment and the tomb represents the receipt. And ladies and gentlemen, I have good news for you today. Our Savior, our Lord, he's alive and well. And I believe with all my heart and all my soul, he has something he wants you to hear of value that will encourage you today. First thing I want you to consider as we celebrate this Easter weekend is what I wanna call the promise of resurrection. The promise of resurrection. There's a beautiful promise, and by the way, it is a promise that Jesus gave. Let me give you the context before we read the text. In this narrative, our Lord has three of his closest friends in all the world who were living in a little town called Bethany. It was the home of Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha. And the biblical record says that Jesus probably spent as much time in their home as any other home that we're aware of while he was in his earthly ministry. He was friends with them. He was close to them. And when you read the narrative in John 11, Lazarus is sick. And it's just, just not an ordinary sickness. The Bible specifies it is a sickness unto death. What's implied there is that none of the medical treatments were working. Nothing they could do would save him. And Mary and Martha do what you do when you have a loved one that's in a situation like that. The Bible says they sin for Jesus. He's only about two miles away from them at this moment. He sinned for him. It's like we do when our loved one and the doctor says, there's nothing else we can do for them. We've done all that we can do. We sin for Jesus. We call it pray. And we'll send a prayer and we'll say, Lord, it's in your hands. There's nothing we can do. It is beyond human, uh, the human scope. But you're a God of, of impossibilities and you're the God of miracles and nothing is too hard for you. And don't you know they prayed intently don't you know they prayed faithfully that Jesus would come and that he would heal Lazarus? What's astonishing in the record as you read it is Jesus doesn't respond. Instead, Lazarus dies. And four days after the funeral, four days after the burial, Jesus shows up. And he shows up because he wanted to make a promise to them. He shows up because he wanted his presence to be near to them. Even though they over here didn't understand it and over here they were upset about it and over here they didn't get why. Jesus on one hand would heal one person but not their loved one. On one hand, Jesus would reach out and minister even to a stranger 
but not respond to his best friend. And I want to say this morning, if you've ever gone through that experience, I can tell you it will throw your spiritual equilibrium off. When you see God do the miraculous in the lives of other people and you pray that he'll do it in your life and he chooses not to. I've told you before throughout this series that oftentimes we pray about our circumstances and we should. The Bible says pray about everything. And we pray about our circumstances. And I've seen God do miraculous things in my life and the lives of others who have prayed for their circumstance. I've seen him touch and heal and I've seen him lift burdens and I've seen him solve problems. I've seen that and you have as well. But what happens oftentimes is when we pray, God doesn't do the thing we pray that he would do in the way that we pray that he would do it. So instead of changing the circumstances, sometimes God does something different. He just gives us the strength to deal with the circumstance. Instead of lifting the burden off of us, sometimes he just gives us the strength to carry that burden. The Bible uses the word patience, and it says tribulation brings about patience. Well, patience is an interesting word. It, it, we get the same root word of endurance. It's the idea of bearing up under a certain amount of pressure and a certain amount of stress. And what I'm saying to your heart and what they learned in John 11 is sometimes God will step in and do the miraculous and sometimes he won't. Sometimes he doesn't do what we pray that he will do. He does another thing and he gives us his grace that sustains us in the midst of the thing that we prayed for that we didn't receive. And here he is with Mary and Martha and they're at the tomb of Lazarus and Jesus gives us amazing promise. It's in John chapter 11. Look at verse 25 and 26. Notice what he says. I am the resurrection and the life. He makes this powerful proclamation that he is resurrection and he is life. And then he goes on to say, he who believes in me, though he may die. Let me tell you something. You can believe in Jesus and still die. I have loved ones, and you do as well, that believe dearly and deeply in Jesus, devotedly to Jesus, and still, still died. You can believe in him, and he was making a point. He said, Lazarus, there wasn't anything wrong with his faith. His faith hadn't failed. It is possible to have faith in God, to believe in him, and he not respond in the way you thought he should. Sometimes God shows his love, not just by what he gives us, but sometimes even what he takes from us. Job said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Job said, blessed be the name of the Lord. He's blessed either way. He's right either way. He's wise either way. He's sovereign either way. He does the best thing either way. So he was making a point in this promise that they would know that you can believe in him and still die. And yet he says, even if you die, you will live. And then he went on to say, whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Now that almost sounds contradictory, but I want to explain what he meant by what he said. And then he looked at Martha and said, you believe this? <laughs> And man, that's where the rubber meets the road, man. That's where the promise makes a difference in your life. It's when it becomes personal. Do you believe this? Do you believe the promise of Jesus when he said, I am the resurrection and the life. And even if you die, you still live again. And if you live and believe in him, listen, you never die. Now, what did he mean by that? 
Well, death is an uncomfortable subject. It's one we talk about on Good Friday. You cannot talk about the Easter story without talking about the profound impact of the death of Jesus there on the cross. It is something you and I have uh, seen loved ones go through and experience and it's heartbreaking and it's soul crushing to lose someone that we love. And so Jesus can relate to the experience, but he's saying that when you have a loved one who dies, even though they die, they still live. Think of the paradox. Now, the, the word death, when someone experiences death, the word death by definition just means separation. Well, separation of what? Well, there's a separation of our loved one from our lives. Many of us have the empty chair at the table. Many of us have that, that vacancy in the home and in our heart that nothing can fill because they're not there. So we understand what we mean when we say death is separation, but it's more than that. Death is separation in the sense that it's the separation of the spirit and the soul from the body. In 1 Thessalonians 5, when God created us, the Bible says, he created us as a spirit and a soul that inhabits a body. I'm a spirit and I'm a soul and I'm living inside of a body. The only part of us that is eternal is our spirit and our soul. In Genesis, the Bible says, God breathed into man the breath of life and man became a living soul. It's the idea of eternal, meaning there'll never be a moment in eternity when you and I will not exist. We'll exist somewhere, but we will exist. So this spirit and soul are eternal, but the body is temporal. The body's like the earth is aging. The body like the earth will have to have a renewal and a resurrection and rejuvenation and a restoration. <laughs> My body is aging. Your body is are aging. And so we are temporal beings housing eternal souls with spirits. And when an individual dies, literally what happens is that spirit and soul separates death from the body. Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians 5. He says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Now, sometimes people think when our loved ones die that somehow their spirit and soul remains in their body and sleeps awaiting the morning of the resurrection. But the Bible doesn't teach soul sleep. In fact, the passage I just gave you in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul puts it plainly, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. You can't be absent and present at the same place at the same time. Solomon understood it way back in, in Ecclesiastes when Solomon says that the spirit returns to God who gave it and the body returns to the earth from whence it came. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. So this idea of death as a separation means our spirit and soul just vacate the body. When a loved one dies, that just means they move from one dimension, the dimension of the temporal, into a new dimension, the dimension of the eternal. There's never a cessation of life. There's never a cessation of existence. You just simply step from one room into the next. You say good night down here to this earthly experience and good morning up there to your eternal experience. And that's exactly what happens when our loved ones die. If you've ever been by the bedside of someone you've loved, you've seen them slip from this life. You know that when they close their eyes down here, that very moment they're opening their eyes into the presence of a real place. Jesus said when he talked about heaven in John 14, he said, I go to prepare a place. It's a Greek word, topos, topos, 
we get the word topography from it. Heaven is a real place. Our loved ones are in a real place called heaven. They're in the presence of God. And when that experience happens where that spirit and soul are released from the body, the body returns to the earth, the spirit to God who gave it. And understand who gave this promise. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. You know what's beautiful about that on an Easter Sunday morning? God gave that promise and he cannot lie. I told you not only can he not lie, he doesn't even exaggerate. <laughs> and I'm just suggesting to your heart this morning that one of the things that would encourage us as we go through dark times is the light of this knowledge that there is a resurrection uh, awaiting us. There is a resurrection that is there. And even if we go through the experience of loss and the experience of death, that our loved ones are in the presence of God. And one day, if he tarries his coming, you and I will follow them. That great Psalm, the 23rd Psalm, when the Psalmist David wrote about this experience I'm talking about, here's how he put it. He said, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. Get the wording of that. He said, I walk. I think about death. I think about running. <laughs> I'd use another word. But he said, God's presence will be there. So I walk. God's grace is there. So I, I walk. And then he didn't say, I walk into the valley. That might need you to believe death is an experience you go into you never get out of. He said, I go through the valley, meaning I'm coming out on the other side. I fear no evil. Why? For you're with me. You know, the moment you receive Jesus and the moment you connect with your creator, there's never a moment in your existence where he'll not be with you. He said there, remember in Hebrews 13, verse five, I will never, get that, never leave you or forsake you. Well, I'm sure Mary and Martha felt forsaken. I'm sure when their heart was broken and so filled with grief at the loss of their brother, they wondered, but man, when Jesus showed up and he gave them his presence, not only did he gave them his presence, he gave them his promise. And his promise is you'll see your brother again. And not only will you see your brother again, you're gonna join me in this place called heaven one day. We'll be together again in this beautiful place called heaven. And I'm just suggesting to your thinking on this Easter Sunday morning, Jesus made an amazing promise when he gave us the promise of resurrection. Do you have it? Secondly, I wanna talk a moment about the problem of resurrection. Everybody doesn't buy what I'm teaching this morning. Everyone doesn't believe in this idea of resurrection. There's a lot of people that say, man, that's just so hard for me to accept that when an individual actually dies, that that person could actually live again, that their bodies could live again. How in the world could that be? And it's hard sometimes for a person to wrap their minds around the concept of resurrection. I understand that. I totally get that. In fact, in Paul's day, he was addressing people who were struggling with this idea. Some of them didn't believe Jesus rose from the dead. Some of them didn't believe even if he did, if they would rise from the dead. And this kind of teaching had kind of influenced the church. And so there were people who liked some of the positive messages of the church, but couldn't accept the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, which is the central message of the church. They wanted to kind of go through the church like a cafeteria line and miss the main course. They said, well, I like how they teach this and teach that. I don't believe that, but I like how they teach this and the other. And that's kind of how the church in Corinth and many in the church, that's where they were. They were influenced by a sect called the Sadducees. And the Sadducees were very influ influential in that day. And their, their dominant teaching of the Sadducee was that there's no resurrection. 
A Sadducee did not believe in the resurrection, which is why they were sad, you see. Insert laugh track. Anyway, so the point is they were influencing the church because of that teaching. So Paul, instead of just rebutting it and, and just uh, and dismissing it, he takes that side of the argument. And he deals with this problem of resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. Listen to what he says. If there's no resurrection, if Christ did not rise, then notice what he says. First of all, our preaching is empty. Every message you've ever heard, empty. Every message I've ever heard, empty. Didn't do anything. It didn't accomplish anything. Maybe it gave somebody a, a, you know, a laugh or some you know, positive twist. But in terms of it changing a life or having an eternal value, nothing. All of the preaching that has been done throughout all the centuries by all the ministers that have ever stu- stood forth and proclaimed God's word. Paul said, if Jesus Christ did not come out of the grave, it's empty. Not only that, he said, your faith is empty. Your faith, that is, what is that part that is sustaining you in the times of adversity and difficulty? That belief that I have something sure and solid to stand on, that somehow or another these things will work together for good to those who love God, those who are the call to his purpose. That faith you have in that idea, Paul said, it's useless, it's empty. If Jesus did not come out of the grave, preaching is empty. Faith is empty. Notice what else he said. We're found false witnesses of God. When Jesus ascends a little later in Acts chapter one and verse eight, the last thing he says to the Christ followers is you will be my witnesses. He doesn't say we're to be lawyers and argue the case. You know, you never argue anyone into a decision to trust Christ. When you start arguing with someone about Jesus, you may win the argument, but you'll lose the person. We're not called to be lawyers to argue our case. Listen, we're called to be witnesses. What does a witness do? A witness expresses an experience. If you go into court to testify, you're going to testify as to what you know, what you've experienced. And Jesus said, just tell them, being a lost world, what I did for you. And all we do, ladies and gentlemen, each day of our life, those of us who believe in Jesus, if we're just one beggar telling another beggar where we found bread. But what's the point Paul's making? He's saying everyone that's ever shared their story with anyone else about the power of God in their life, their witnesses are false. He said, you just lied to people about your experience. He said, he goes on to say, your faith is futile. It's vain, it's void. There's nothing to it. And then he says, you're still in your sins. You've never been forgiven. I talked the other night about the value of having that guilt lifted off of us at the cross. Paul said, if Jesus didn't come out of the grave, you still have that sin on you. You're still going to have to struggle with the guilt of your past. Not only the guilt of your past, you're gonna struggle with the idea that you're under the condemnation of God. You can't save yourself and he won't. There's nothing you can do. You're powerless, you're condemned. And then you're gonna have to deal with the fact that forever you're separated from his presence. Paul said, if Jesus didn't come out of that grave and there's no faith that you can place in him, then this is the reality of your situation. And then he says, those we have lost, those who have died have perished, meaning we'll never see them again. I've done hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of funerals and I can tell you the most comforting thing I can say to a family at a time like that, and let me tell you the most comforting thing 
I heard my heart say at a time like that is you're going to see him again. This isn't goodbye forever. This is just so long for a little while. But Paul is saying if Jesus Christ didn't come out of that grave, there's no hope. We'll never see them again. And no wonder he concluded it with this expression, we're of all men most miserable. <laughs> it's the most miserable life to live thinking this is the best it will ever be. That there's no heaven. The only heaven I'm going to have is what I'm dealing with here on this earth. And when it's over, baby, it's over. That's one of the most miserable ways to live. It's one of the most miserable existence. And Paul said that's the existence of one who has a problem with resurrection, who cannot accept it and receive it. And I can tell you, folks, I, I think it's a strategy. When you think about the strategy of the enemy, he's always coming into the world to put a question mark in places where God has placed an exclamation point. He did that in the garden with the original temptation in Genesis 3. He says to Eve, did God say that? Hath God said? He's always been in the business of questioning things that God has said. This is what it's going to be. Are you sure you heard that right? Or really, a resurrection? Are you kidding me right now? And Paul, in setting this up in 1 Corinthians 15, he said, the good news that we take to the world is the gospel. By the way, the word gospel means good news. Let me chase this little rabbit long enough to give you some advice. Uh, find out what's going on in the world, maybe in the morning, or catch up with it in the evening, and don't tune into the news throughout the day. You're getting 15, 20 different opinions of what you already heard to be true. And all they're going to do is give you something that's going to put you in a funk and depress you. <laughs> I mean, that's all that's going to happen. I find out what's going on, I move on to something else. I find out what happened at the end of the day, I move on to something else. And I want to tell you, the church is about good news. The gospel means good news. That's why during this time when we are quarantined to keep us from going quarantine crazy, we're going to try to bring you some good news through all the things that we're offering online because we got a lot of good news to bring you. And when Paul was writing this resurrection chapter in 1 Corinthians 15, he opens before the resurrection talking about the gospel, and he says the gospel sets on a tripod, and the tripod is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. What does the enemy do? He tries to knock one of those legs out from under it. He tries to dismiss the death of Jesus, or he tries to make little of his burial, or he, doesn't, or he makes light and doesn't accept the idea of resurrection. So if he can get you to doubt one of those elements of the gospel, then the gospel falls and you don't accept it and you don't believe it. So that's been the thing that he's been up to. And Paul was addressing that in the church saying, this is the danger. If you buy into this idea of no resurrection, then you have ignored the centerpiece of all history. All of the Old Testament looks forward to that event. All the New Testament looks back on that event. But there's nothing in the world more significant than the fact Jesus went to a cross, the sinless Son of God, to bear my sin and yours. And he paid the penalty. Mercy and truth met together. And he died on the cross, satisfying the justice of a righteous and holy God upon sin. And he went into the grave three days, Friday Afternoon, he's off of the cross because he can't be on the cross according to Jewish law on Sabbath. So they hurry him and prepare his body and get him ready and they put him in the tomb. The Jews believed any part of one day can count as a whole day. So though it was in the afternoon hours on the cross, it was day one, Saturday, day two, early in the morning, Sunday, any part of a day counts as a day according to their tradition. So Sunday morning, day three. So Paul taught that. 
He said, you got to believe that. It's the centerpiece of all scripture. And then he kind of concludes by bringing the nose of the plane up, if you will, with my last point, where Paul talks about the proclamation of resurrection. And he gives it there in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. But now is Christ risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He's the example, the first fruits, meaning the harvest coming behind him is going to look just like him. I think about that early Sunday morning when Mary went to finish the burial process because they hadn't quite finished it yet. They had wrapped his body after they cleaned it. They had wrapped his body in linens and between each linen fold, there was a sticky substance that would adhere to the linens and it would make it fit tightly to his body. And it was a, an a aromatic uh, fragrance called myrrh. But they didn't quite get him finished. And so they wanted to go back to finish the process. And when they got to the tomb, instead of finding a, a dead body, she found a risen savior. She rushes to the other apostles and guess where they go? They go to the upper room. They gather in that special place where Jesus had just given them communion, where he had broken the bread and, and he had given them the wine and he talked to them. They go to that same room. And the Bible says with the doors closed suddenly out of nowhere, Jesus appears. And they thought he was a spirit. They thought he was a ghost. They thought they might be hallucinating. And Jesus says to Thomas, Thomas, reach forth your hand and touch me. He said, a spirit doesn't have flesh and bone as you see me have. What did Paul say? He's the first fruits. What kind of body did he have? A body of flesh and bone. What are the resurrected bodies like? They're bodies of flesh and bone. When these bodies will be resurrected from Mother Earth, when God recreates them and restores them and perfects them and glorifies them, they're bodies of flesh and bone. Heaven isn't a place where we're just floating on clouds, strumming harps like a bunch of ghosts. Heaven is a place of real people, people who will inhabit real bodies at the resurrection. And so in these bodies, this glorified body, Thomas sees that Jesus is offering the opportunity to touch him by saying, my body is flesh and bone. You leave the upper room and you see 500 witnesses saw him. How many witnesses do you need to prove a fact? 500 saw him. On the road to Emmaus, two of his closest disciples talked with him, visited with him. James, his brother, his half-brother, never believed in Jesus Never believed he was the Messiah or the Savior till after the resurrection. And when, John, or when James saw his brother die on that cross, and then he saw him three days later alive, James humbled his heart and said, he's real. He's the son of God. And for the rest of his life, James is a powerful preacher of the truth of Jesus. And then you have Paul on the road to Damascus in Acts 9, even after the resurrection, the voice from heaven is the voice of Jesus. And Paul has an experience with the resurrected Jesus that absolutely changes his life. Folks, I've got great news for you. I've got the news of resurrection. I've got the news that we're going to a better place. I've got good news that those that we loved and we've said goodbye to, we're gonna see them again. I told the services earlier, this has been a hard weekend. A lot of ways. The first uh, Easter I've had uh, since Cindy went to heaven. And I can tell you the thing that keeps you going is the hope of the resurrection. I know where she is. May 31st, my kids and I gather around her bedside. And we prayed for her and kissed her 
and we stayed with her. In a few moments, she was absent from her body and present with her Lord. It's a hope that'll bring you comfort. And Paul talks about it in 1 Thessalonians 4. He said, it's the blessed hope. I hope you have that hope. And if you don't, let me tell you, the hope is in a person. It's not in a religion. It's not in your rituals. It's not in your relationship. It's not in your righteousness. You can't be good enough. Jesus said, you remember the promise? I am the resurrection and the life. And then he went on to say, he who believes in me, even though he dies, yet will he live. I ask you what he asked Martha as I close the message. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? If not, I encourage you to pray this prayer with me. Right where you are, just humble your heart. Just say, Lord Jesus, I believe you died on that cross for me. I believe you rose on Easter for me. And with everything I know about me, I trust everything I know about you. I pray in this moment you'll come into my life. I pray you'll forgive my sin. I pray you'll be a reality in me. On this Easter Sunday, I want to know that I know you are my Savior. So I trust you today. Thank you, Father, that you've heard our prayer. Thank you that you love us. Thank you, Father, for the joy of, of walking with you each day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, that smattering applause from our marvelous tech team. We love those guys and thank them so much for helping us uh, do these services and helping you see and hear these services. Our amazing band, of course, Rob and Laney with the worship that they brought. And uh, these things keep going. Not only do we need a laugh track to help me, but we need an applause track, right? To kind of fill the room a little bit. But I'm so happy you've joined us. I hope you will share the service with other people. And I just believe, you know, it's been kind of my tradition to kind of come out after these big weekends and just on behalf of the family. I usually had Cindy here. And, but I kind of think that uh, this weekend, God just gave her a little front row seat. And I could imagine Cindy sitting in heaven today holding our little grandbaby, Evie, and being able to experience this service. And that's, uh, that's what I think. The Bible says we're rejoicing in the presence of the angels when a sinner repents. So I do know there's certain information that gets through to heaven that will bless heaven. I think anything that would make heaven more heaven for those who are there, God would allow it. So I just kind of believe that he's allowing some of our loved ones in heaven to look in in our lives. And I think this is a meaningful experience for, for our family and our church. And I think he kind of let her look in today. Thank you for being here. Next weekend, I'm going to start a brand new series. And uh, I'll just share the title with you later. You're going to love it. But I hope that uh, you'll be back. We're going to have a great time. Stay safe. God bless you. We love you. We'll see you soon. Thank you so much for tuning in today with us. If you have any questions or prayer requests, please contact us so that we can follow up with you this week by visiting metchurch.com. We look forward to seeing you again next week.